Hello and welcome back to A Reason for Hope. I'm your host, Mario Costabile, and I'm glad that you're listening to this right now. We do a lot of things here at Array of Hope. We evangelize through films, through music, and events, but this podcast is a little different. It gives us the opportunity to tackle some deeper topics and subjects about our faith. Today's podcast is going to be very interesting because it's called, Can Faith and Science Be Friends? Good question. Our guest is Father Robert Spitzer. As Christians, we always feel somewhat backed into a corner when we're challenged when someone says to us, can you prove to me that God is real? And some others might say, look, I believe in science and that's the truth and that's what I live by. But what if I were able to tell you that the existence of God can be proven by science? You might say, Mario, come on, really? That's impossible. Well, I come back to you and say that all things are possible with God. And I got to tell you, this episode is going to make your head spin. So welcome to A Reason for Hope. And here we go. So Dave, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Mario. How are That's you? Good. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, before we actually get into it today, I, I just I wanted to share something with you that's sort of been on my mind. It's a bit controversial. You know, I've been seeing these signs that people are putting outside their houses, right? And and it, I find that to be a bit odd. They're kind of proclaiming what they think is their truth in a way. And, yeah. and one of the things is that we believe in science. We believe in science. Yeah, we yes. believe in science. It's like, yeah. or science is real. And, and I don't get that. Like, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, let, let's just say that I think that it's a hidden criticism of anyone who would possibly like question or ask questions about whatever's being put forth as the prevailing scientific opinion. Mm. Um, whether that be on you know, climate change or evolution or even the pandemic, you know, um, I think that that's certainly what it's trying to do is trying to, to actually make a statement about other people as much as it's trying to make a statement about the people in there. I find the words, I believe in science or we believe in science to be interesting. I, I, maybe we can come back to that later on. Mm. Another one that you will often see listed among the list of beliefs is women's rights are human rights, which you know, on, on the face of it, it's like, no, duh, right? You know, because women are human, mm -hmm. human rights. Yeah. But, but women's rights there is really like code language for abortion rights. That's what's being said. Because these are typically, they're statements that seem like just statements, but they're really masked political mm, positions. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing I find really funny about that, although abortion's not funny at all, is that they say they believe in science, and yet the science is pretty much in on the humanity of the unborn child. So yeah. we believe in science in these areas, but not in this, you know, not in the area of embryology. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's just kind of, it's kind of ridiculous and yeah. and hypocritical or well, you, contradictory. You hit the nail on the head. It's mm -hmm. a political statement that they want you to a masked political statement. That's what it is. Yeah, you know, kind of yeah. a thing. So um, that's a great point, Dave. Mm -hmm. So today we're actually going to be discussing: Can faith and science? Be friends, mm. uh, and uh, we're with uh, Father Robert Spitzer. Uh, he's he's our guest, 
which we're really excited about. And uh, he has a whole apostolate dedicated to uh, showing the reasonableness of the Catholic faith and how contemporary science actually points to the truth of it. Our patron saint, St. John Paul II, wrote the following, Faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of the truth. And God has placed on the human heart the desire to know the truth. So Dave, can you share your thoughts about the relationship between faith and reason or faith and science? Sure, absolutely. Now, this is a very important question because I think that that these are seen as almost like mutually exclusive categories, faith and reason or faith and science. And and that's problematic because it it reveals, I think, two things. One, there's a misunderstanding of what faith is. And then mm. and then also there's really a misunderstanding about what science is. And there's, there's a misunderstanding about the limits of science, maybe even what we mean by that generally. So what is a science, first of all? Well, a science, simply put, is reasoning from known truths to unknown ones, and then developing a body of knowledge based on that reasoning. That is the way every area of science works. It just depends on what it is you're reasoning about. So like, for example, biology, the words, by the way, that make up the word biology are bios, which means life, logos, which many people, you know, reduce to meaning the study of, and they're therefore the study of life. But the word logos in Greek means something far more and far richer. It's not only the word for word, it actually refers to reason. Mm. So really what biology is, is reasoning about life. So the area of biology focuses on life science, but it is one of many sciences, and that's its area. But you would see that there's different ologies that are about other sorts of or subject areas of science. And this is the point. Whatever science there is, and there are many, it deals with reasoning from known truths, either that are a priori, that is self-evidently true, or a posteriori, that is observably true, to unknown truths by means of logical construction, systematic grouping, and correct deductions. With regard to the physical sciences, for example, the scientific method is used uh, to accomplish this. You know, you make certain observations, you come up with a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis, and you can test that hypothesis in a practical way, that is through experimental data, or you can test that hypothesis in a mathematical way, mm. you know, and then you get into the area of theoretical physics and things like this. Um, now, by the way, metaphysics, which is in the area of philosophy, operates exactly the same way. Metaphysics is the science of being. In other words, it's it's the study of being as being. So instead of looking at the principles and qualities of a particular kind of being, like living beings, for example, which biology does, metaphysics looks at the principles and qualities that apply to all beings. And it operates from known truths and pieces them together by reason to come up with things that were unknown before. Hmm. And it formulates a body of philosophical knowledge that is a science. Hmm. Theology is a science. 
Right. It's a science because what does it do? It takes known truths, and you could start with with natural theology. What are things we can know about God, that God exists, for example, or certain divine attributes that we can know by reason alone, and then it it pieces those things together and comes up with other truths. So you got natural theology, but then on top of that, you've got you've got the knowledge or the data of revelation where God reveals to us things that are necessarily true. And oh, by the way, more true than anything we can know for ourselves because God has revealed it and God cannot be deceived nor deceive. So the things that we get from revelation, we, we could be more certain of than anything we could come up with on our own. They excel even the highest degree of human certitude, which is within our reach. Theology was the queen of the sciences because it didn't only kind of focus on how to make this life on earth easier or or help us to know more about our earthly existence but it was focused on eternity and the and the supernatural life and how to get you to heaven and to ultimate happiness not just focused mm-hmm. on earthly happiness and then of course the certitude that theology guarantees because it's it's working off of divine revelation which has been revealed by god which is necessarily true There's a certitude that theology can have that the other sciences don't have. And this is, I think, very interesting because usually it's flipped, right? Right. Usually it's like, well, that has to do with faith and therefore it's less certain than the human sciences. By the way, that's a whole conversation we can't get into right now because that has to do with a, a lot of human history and the history of ideas and how our attitudes towards all these things changed from the scientific revolution through the enlightenment to our current day. But mm-hmm. I'll, sp- I'll spare you the, all mm-hmm. those details, but it's another podcast. It's another podcast perhaps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so I think that's the first thing that I would say is a really important thing is that people get science wrong. That being said, people also get faith wrong. So, you know, before we talk about like religious faith or supernatural faith, I want to just talk about simple faith. So simple faith in things. So when we came into this room, I watched you. You didn't check to see that that chair was stable before you sat in it. I had faith that it worked. Yes, because it's worked before. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. So in that way, you exhibited simple faith in things. You didn't have absolute certainty that it wouldn't just collapse under you. You didn't know that I didn't unscrew the screws a little bit to play Mm -hmm. a practical joke. You didn't think about any of that because also, you know, I'm not a practical jokester. Um, But the fact is you didn't think about any of that. Right. And and I would say we do this all the time. Sure. You know, we use microwaves. People don't freak out, you know, run the other direction. Well, maybe some people do, but, uh, you know, know, we we flush the toilet and don't run out of the room as fast as we can, you know, like, (laughs) you know, for fear that somehow gravity is not going to work this time. (laughs) I mean, like there's just things that we don't do. Mm. But we can't say that we have certainty. Well, the same is true with regards to simple faith in people. Like, think about our friends. Like, how do we know that our friends love us? Mm. Well, they say they love us, but they could be deceiving us. They might have ulterior motives. Mm. You could say, well, they proved to me that they love me by they doing this and and doing that and doing the other thing. It's like, well, yeah, that's gathering some information, but it doesn't give you mathematical certainty. I mean, you've never had people who have treated you nicely before and then, you know, pulled a fast one on you. There was a bait and switch. Right. I mean, so I think we've had enough experience where people prove themselves untrustworthy. So, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you know? The fact is that you have faith. 
this is in a way what happens when you get married. Isn't, isn't marriage an ultimate act of faith? It's not, but it's not unreasonable. You, you know certain things that enable you to say, no, it's true. Right? So like if, if someone were to ask me, does my wife love me? I don't doubt that in the slightest bit. In fact, I'd say, yes, I'm absolutely certain that she does. Mm-hmm. Even though I don't have absolute certainty, I claim it as if it's certain. Mm-hmm. And I don't doubt it in the least. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting because it's an act of faith that I'm saying is certain. Mm-hmm. So when it comes down to supernatural faith, it's not that people don't have reasons to believe. Is that they don't have mathematical certainty. Mm. And yet, I say, I believe Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. I believe that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. I say, amen to that, which means it is so. It's kind of like, you know, if you were at a Baptist church and the minister said something like powerful in a sermon and you hear everybody say, amen, what they're really saying is, that's true. Yes. So when the priest says the body of Christ and holds up the host in front of us and we say amen, we're saying not just a weak I believe among many beliefs. We're saying that's true. It is so. It's certain that that's Jesus. So we claim certainty. Faith is certain. It makes universal truth claims that are true for everybody, not just for the believer. But it does that for reasons. It just doesn't have enough reasons mm-hmm. to call it mathematical certainty. But that doesn't mean you have no reasons. And so if you misunderstand faith thinking like it's a blind leap, like it's like, you know, a shot in the dark that, you know, some people have reason, some people have faith, then they mis- you misunderstand faith. Right. Faith is not believing blindly. It's It might be a step in the dark in the sense that it's a step further than mathematical certainty. Right. But, but it doesn't mean that you have no certainty, and it doesn't mean that you have no reasons. So this is, I think, a, a fundamental problem with the dichotomy we have between faith and reason or faith and science, is that we don't understand what science is, and we don't understand what faith is. And we ascribe to science more than more credit than it's due, and we ascribe to faith less credit than it's due. Mm. And even considering simple faith in people, let's face it, let's, let's bring these things together. You took science classes in high school, right? Maybe if you went to, you know, in your college degree, you probably had to take a few like core courses mm-hmm. in science even. Yeah. Did very bad. Okay. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Science wasn't, wasn't quite my thing either <laughs> in the sense that I didn't really love it. Um, but is that certain what, what you learned in that science class? Well, let's think about it. Did you do all those experiments yourself that you read about? Did you like, you know, go mm-hmm. to see that telescope? Did you go look under the microscope? Did you do all those kinds of things? You might have had a lab here and there, right? right? You know, mm-hmm. but... But the stuff you're reading about in that book, there's a lot of faith there. What do I mean? Well, there's faith in the people who put that textbook together that they were actually putting in there stuff that was authentic and true, true. and the best up-to-date stuff. But you also trust the people who did the actual experiments 
And then you trust your teacher to be able to pick a good textbook that, that they've had a certain education, that they know what they're talking about. Well, actually, whether you realize it or not, you leave that class effectively saying, I believe in science. In the sense of what? I believe in my science teacher. I believe in the textbook. I believe in the people who did the experiments. I believe in the conclusions that were drawn by the scientists. Mm -hmm. Wow, there's a lot of faith there with regards to science. <laughs> Right? Right. And this is something that I don't think people get. Mm. So perhaps that sign you spoke about, we believe in science, that science is real, was more true than even the folks who hang it know. So what's the relationship between faith and reason or faith and science? Now, I think we can make two points. One, truth anywhere is of God, because God is truth itself. So truth in the sciences and truth in mathematics and truth in philosophy or theology is of God. And then the second thing is that theology is defined as faith-seeking understanding. So reason helps faith understand its object, that which God has revealed. But, but faith helps reason to go beyond its inherent limitations. There are things which reason couldn't know had not God revealed them. So you could say faith perfects reason. So in our present day, we're especially with, you know, there's a lot of high emotions with the pandemic and things that are thrown around about this is what science says. This is the science. This is the science. You know, <laughs> I think that like it's important for us to recognize what science is and isn't and what its limitations are, but also to understand that faith is reasonable. Yeah. And, and so you can't just dismiss a person of faith as an unenlightened, superstitious simpleton. And yet often signs like we believe in science, well, that's exactly what they're trying to do. <laughs> you know, that's exactly yeah. what they're trying to do. Interesting. So... Great, great points, Dave. Mm -hmm. Love it. It was really great analogies that they could really put into focus, you know, the difference Good. between science and faith and, and where where it stands. It's awesome. Now, Father Spitzer is way smarter than me, so he's going to really flesh that out more. Well, I wouldn't say he's way smarter, but he's, he's different kind of smarts. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. Thank uh, you. Well, we're on camera. I have to... <laughs> I appreciate it, my brother. <laughs> <laughs> Great seeing you, Dave. God bless. All right, you too. Hey, guys. It's Mariama here for Who's That Saint, where I give you three clues on one saint for you to guess before the big reveal. Who's that saint? Without further ado, let's get started. Clue one. This saint was born in 2nd century Syria and was personal friends with many apostles and first disciples of Christ. He was discipled by St. John the Beloved and friends with St. Polycarp, who we also see in Scripture. Who's that saint? I kind of think it's cool that he knew all these saints that we see in the Bible. So if you know who I'm talking about, let me know. I don't know how you will. Maybe shout in your car, but let me know. All right, clue number two. Apt for leadership, 
This saint was made Bishop of Antioch, where he exhorted his fellow Christians to follow the narrow way of Christ, despite the growing hostility and violence they faced. Who's that saint? I don't know if that clue was really super helpful because all throughout Christianity, we've all faced dangers as Christians. But, you know, I think you guys got it. I have confidence in you. Clue three. Eventually, the Roman emperor Trajan forced Christians in Antioch to apostatize or face death. Leading by example, this saint fearlessly chose death, in which he was condemned to be torn apart by lions in the Circus Maximus in Rome. Along his journey from Syria to Rome, he wrote seven letters, which we still have today, which testify to the saint's holiness. In the seventh letter, he begged the Christians in Rome not to stop his martyrdom, saying, The only thing I ask of you is to allow me to offer the libation of my blood to God. I am the wheat of the Lord. May I be ground by the teeth of the beasts to become the immaculate bread of Christ. All right, last chance. Who's that saint? Let me know. If you guessed St. Ignatius of Antioch, then you would be correct. Can you imagine living during the same time as St. Ignatius? He was actual friends with people named in scripture, and he sat at the feet of other saints that we look up to, like his friend St. Polycarp. The seven letters that he wrote on the way to his death still offer us much wisdom today. Five of these letters were written to the churches in Asia Minor, instructing them to stay true to the faith and obey those in authority over them. The sixth letter was to his friend St. Polycarp, who would soon follow him in the footsteps of martyrdom. And the seventh letter, which we heard a line from in Clue 3, was a letter to his flock to not fight against his martyrdom. He died after being torn apart by the lions in the Circus Maximus, which is intense. Though his death was gruesome and highlights the evil that can come out of humanity, his response to this great tragedy sheds light on the truth of Christ, that our bodily death is not to be feared, and as St. Paul exhorts, O death, where is thy sting? All the martyrs, including St. Ignatius, understood that earthly death was not the end, but the beginning of eternal life with Christ. May we ask St. Ignatius of Antioch to pray for us, that we may be able to spend our earthly life well, so as to prepare for the eternal life to come. St. Ignatius of Antioch, pray for us. So welcome back to the Music Corner, everybody. We're uh, very excited today. We have a special guest for you. His name is, drumroll please, he's already doing it, Mr. Jimmy Meyer, Mr. James Meyer. Hey, hey, what's up? Jimmy, how long have you been with A Ray of Hope? Over 10 years. But you just hopped on full-time. Full-time, yeah. So now I'm, uh, I'm working with you and with the guys in the video world, pairing the two together, doing audio for video, as well as uh, drumming and helping out with the production stuff for the band. Dude, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thanks. Um, so um, real Definitely. quick, our audience does know that we have been down to Nashville. And I just wanted to get uh, a real quick snippet of your insight. What sure. was, give me like two things that we did in Nashville that were really impactful for you. 
Okay. Well, the first walk through the studio was definitely overwhelming because uh, the studio was actually an old church that has been converted into a studio. So Oceanway Studios. Oceanway Studios in Nashville, yeah. Um, so it was overwhelmingly beautiful to just walk in. Um, and, you know, we recorded some new original songs during the daytime. But once it got dark outside, we did uh, some live sessions and with a live string quartet mm. uh, and the whole band was playing live. Specifically, uh, the song Abba Father was like a, the energy in the room was crazy. The Holy Spirit was definitely present. Personally, you were the one who, who made me realize it, but in the bridge, I was overwhelmed. And literally, we finished that take and you like came up behind me, put your hands on my shoulders and you were like, man, oh, yeah. that was amazing. And I was like, yeah. what was amazing? You're like, what you just played? I was like, I didn't play. I wasn't playing the drums. Yeah. I, I was no longer playing the drums. It was a different part than you usually play right. in that specific right. section. We had rehearsed that song hundreds of times and never had I heard that part being played or seen it written down. And I just, I we listened back and I was like, I didn't play that, but yeah. it's pretty awesome. And that actually made the final the final uh, take of the song. So, it did. It did. Yeah. I, whenever I hear it still, I'm like, man, that's... That's crazy. It was uh, a movement of grace, I think, right? Absolutely. A yeah. movement of the spirit. For sure. So be on the lookout on Spotify yes, and Apple sure. Music, wherever you listen to music for our upcoming releases, because they're in the mastering stage at this point. We're getting close. We got probably like 10 to 15 songs yeah. coming out soon yeah. with video. Yep. So uh, we're super excited. Jim, Jimmy, thank you so much yeah, for joining course, us man. today. Thanks. Yeah. It's All fun. right. Bye, guys. <laughs> Hey everybody, we got some exciting news. We have a whole new Array of Hope app and channel, a video destination where everyone can find meaningful and inspiring videos and resources to help bring them closer to God. This is available on your desktop, Roku, Apple TV, iPhones and Android mobile phones and tablets. This channel has movies, short, faith-filled segments, live events, and programs. You've got to check it out. Sign up by going to watch.arrayofhope.net and then download the app at the App Store by just typing in Array of Hope. Father Robert Spitzer is a Jesuit priest, philosopher, educator, author, and speaker. He has made many television appearances, including Larry King Live, debating Stephen Hawking, and Leonard Milotinov. He's also been on the Today Show debating the topic of active euthanasia, the History Channel, In God and the Universe, and a multiple-part PBS series, Closer to the Truth, as well as The Hugh Hewitt Show. Currently, Father is appearing weekly on EWTN's Father Spitzer's Universe. Father is also currently the president and co-founder of the Magi Center. So let's welcome Father Robert Spitzer. Well, Father, I want to thank you so much for uh, meeting with me and joining this podcast and this whole video presentation. I've uh, been looking forward to this. Uh, I, you probably don't remember this. I've met you a couple of times. I actually ate breakfast with you at Napa. And we talked uh, about our ministries oh, and yeah. our work. You remember? You yeah, know. a couple of years ago. Uh, yeah, when we were still doing live. Yeah. Yeah, it was a couple of years back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I've, I've certainly talked to your team, uh, which is wonderful and, and, and know your work very well. So, and thank you for, for joining mm -hmm. us and being part of this. And I, I really appreciate you offering your time for us. There's a lot of things I want to talk to you about. Uh, you know, um, one of the things I like to start our interviews with is to go even 
further back than most viewers might know about you. So tell me a little bit about, you know, uh, you as a child. I mean, were you brought up uh, as a cradle Catholic? Were you brought up in a Catholic family? Tell me a little bit about your background, Father. Well, my dad was not Catholic, but my mother was very much a daily communicant Catholic. And uh, she um, not only went to church uh, every single day, but uh, kept the faith right at the center of her life and communicated that to me. She made sure that we were in the altar boys. She even gave us all the Latin responses uh, that we needed to be altar boys in the old uh, traditional uh, church wow. uh, that had the Latin responses. She certainly... Um, uh, brought us up in the catechism classes, which I, I, I didn't go to a Catholic school, um, but I um, uh, I went to a private school that was not Catholic, and and um, the uh, uh, we went to Catholic catechism class every single Saturday, and um, uh, I certainly learned my lessons very very well there. Uh, they were excellent catechism classes right through the whole Baltimore catechism. Wow! So you were really brought up in the faith from an early age. Absolutely. And my father, of course, was uh, cooperative, though I, uh, though not a Catholic. Okay. Uh, what religion was your father? Well, he was Lutheran, and okay. his father was actually uh, Jewish. Okay. Okay. So you sort of like inherited your faith in a way from your mom, who was so devout. Uh, was there a moment in your childhood where you really, in a sense, had ownership of your faith, where you felt God? You, you realized that he was real. It wasn't something that your mom was kind of teaching you. Was there a moment in your life that you can reflect upon as to when that happened? Yeah, well, there were several times. I mean, um, when I went to church, you know, I had my little missile there. And, um, you know, to translate from the Latin to the English. And I always felt very, very close to God in church. And, you know, we had statues in our room. We had medals. I mean, I felt close to God in my room. Um, you know, uh, I obviously had some of the problems that a lot of modern, um, you know, adolescents had, kind of holding on to that faith a little bit when I was uh, in my later high school years. Uh, you know, I've been reading a lot of, um, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, let's call them existentialist thinkers in, in mm -hmm. my um, uh, last two years of high school. And so, you know, between uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, Albert Camus and, um, you know, Elie Wiesel's Night and a few other um, books, I was beginning to think, well, wait a minute here. Um, how does the, the world of suffering make sense and things of that nature? So I kind of went out on my own little, um, you know, rounds to try and uh, find some evidence for God, um, but was kind of unsuccessful in getting, like, I never heard of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and proofs for the existence of God. Mm. I was very, uh, I liked uh, the sciences very, very mm. much, and and um, certainly would have enjoyed some scientific basis for my um, faith at the time, but um, people just didn't know it. I mean, my priests were wonderful. They were spiritual. I loved the church. I felt still close to God. I just wanted evidence, you know, to, to help catapult me. Um, my mom was a lovely person, very intuitive, um, but uh, less inclined toward proofs and things of that nature. Um, and so uh, by pure divine providence, really, when I got to Gonzaga and, uh, uh, you know, I got introduced to some of the scientific evidence and uh, the new singularity theorems and then later 
Um, I heard literally a professor talking about proofs for the existence of God in you know one of his classrooms and sort of slid in there and um, you know I didn't have to in my major I didn't have to take metaphysics so I thought well what class is this you know and they said well this is a metaphysics I said oh man you know uh, I've got some questions about this proof of God he goes ah, ah, ah. I know very well you're not in this class, you know. Uh, if you come and join this class, he says, uh, next uh, semester, um, I'll, I'll prove the existence of God to you. So yeah. I, I did, you know, yeah. and he did. That's and awesome. um, yeah. that, uh, between, you know, getting some of that uh, scientific evidence and getting, getting some of that uh, metaphysical evidence, I began to think, oh, my gosh, you know, maybe there is a solid foundation. And, you know, um, yeah. once I had that, um, you know, um, uh, sort of settled in my brain. Uh, then I began to think I really ought to learn something about scripture. And then of course I got very interested in learning about theology, but all this time, I just have to say, um, as I was kind of struggling to get the, the evidence, I was going to daily mass. Um, and that happened because of, uh, an incident when I was a freshman, where a guy had kind of challenged me to go to daily mass and I decided to go. And then, um, uh, during Lent. And then when I, um, when Lent was finished, I thought I'm going to keep going. And so I did. And, um, I became part of that, uh, you know, daily mass group. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I'm sure when you combine that grace with, oh, you know, yeah. these providential instances oh, yeah. where God was kind of introducing me to the evidence and, yeah things of that nature, um, that's where I really started getting the, the strength and yeah. the desire to learn theology. And all of a sudden, you know, for me, you know, the idea of making money or being a powerful person was very, very important. But um, I began to sort of push that um, to the side, and my religion was becoming progressively more important and in the center. And that's when the strong desire for a vocation kind of popped up. And, um, you know, then I, I tried to get out of it in my own head <laughs> by, you know, thinking, well, how could I be? A, my father was a lawyer and a very successful one and had gone to Harvard Law School, wanted me to go to Harvard Law School. So, you know, I didn't want to be a disappointment, you know, mm. obviously. And I had some gift of the gab and that, um, you know, he liked uh, that and saw some potential in it. And so um, uh, my mom came up with this grand scheme uh, to go ahead and become a deacon. And they ha just had a Time Magazine article on the permanent diaconate, which mm. I had never heard of before, uh, where you could actually get married. You could, you know, have a like a lay job, like being a lawyer, taking over my dad's law firm, say, sure. and some of the family businesses. And yet at the same time, I could be serving the church uh, in a clerical position like the, the diaconate. And I thought, that is for me, you know? So <laughs> I thought, oh, you know, you know, debate in my head is concluded. I said, mom, you're a genius. And so um, I thought, I'm gonna go with this. Then, um, you know, one day I was walking out of daily mass. I was going to St. Al's uh, for church. And I spotted this book out of the corner of my eye and it just said, uh, you know, becoming a priest. And half of my mind said, read that book. And half of my mind said, do not pick up that book. Run. Because <laughs> I just knew the debate in my head yeah. would start surging again. You know, yeah. I just 
didn't want it. Wow. Just proceed to law school, make life easy, don't get involved in this debate. But I picked up the book, and um, as I was reading through this, I just felt this call of God just coming over me, honestly. Yeah. By the time I, I sat there in the back of that church, read that, it was kind of like one of these 30 pagers with all the pictures, you know, mm -hmm. read the whole thing. And I just think uh, by the end of the book, what am I doing? You know, I mean, this is my call. Yeah. I mean, basically, I mean, from that point onward, I really knew. So, Father, you, you wrote this book called New Proofs for Existence of God, Contributions yeah. of Contemporary Physics and Philosophy. Uh, what do you think are some of the most compelling arguments in light of the most up-to-date scientific and philosophical research that points to the reasonableness of God's existence? Yeah, I mean, the science is getting even stronger and stronger. But in there, uh, you know, chapters one and two really look at the scientific and physical evidence. So um, this would be more concentrating on the board of Lincoln and Guth proof, uh, also the entropy evidence. BVG uh, proof is a, what's called a space-time geometry proof, which uh, pretty much shows that um, um, uh, you would need a beginning of any expanding system. Doesn't matter whether it's a multiverse, a universe, uh, you know, and let's call it a string universe in the higher dimensional space or string theory. Every single one of those configurations is gonna require a beginning uh, because of the dynamics of this proof, which I'm not gonna go into in, in the show, but um, you can go to uh, a website called um, uh, crediblecatholic.com mm -hmm. and just click on the big book and go to volume one of the big book and that board of Lincoln and Guth proof will be explained to you in six non-mathematical steps. And of course, you can go right to the articles that have the mathematical uh, justification as well. And then um, another area is called entropy. Entropy is the fact that all physical systems run down, uh, essentially, and entropy is the running down of those physical systems. The main insight to get is that if a physical system lasted for an infinite amount of time, it's always going to have a finite amount of um, what we call um, energy—not uh, energy, a finite amount of um, of uh, usable energy in that system. Uh, and so, eventually, it's going to run down over an infinite amount of time, which means if our universe were a, a, a standard, a physical uh, system in the standard model, then uh, it should have run out of um, steam a long time ago. So, you got these two big proofs of a beginning. And then you have another area, which is called the fine-tuning constants. And so we've got uh, uh, several constants um, in our universe. These are constants that deal with uh, the low entropy of our universe at the beginning of time. The basic insight to get here is that, um, uh, is that uh, we need low entropy to get a life form to develop within our particular kind of universe. And since low entropy of our universe is about the same as a monkey typing the entire corpus of Shakespeare in a single try by random tapping of the keys. That's really against the odds. Mm. And just how did we do that? How did we get did such happen? low entropy in yeah. our universe? That is the question. And there's many other, um, you know, what we call uh, physical constants that have to do um, with um, the forces of our universe and other physical constants that have to do with um, other 
um, uh, dimensions of our universe, for example, are particles, uh, especially the quarks and the ratio of quarks uh, to electrons and neutrons and things of that nature. All these things are not determined by any specific universal law. So how did we get all those constants to have the magnitudes, the numbers that they have by random chance uh, at the, the Big Bang? Th this is the question. And, and of course, it's not a, an easily answered question. You can't say pure chance, that's not gonna work. So people have devised not just a multiverse, but today they have devised what's called an infinite or eternal multiverse. And this is the way they think they can get around both fine-tuning constants and the beginning. But unfortunately, uh, the idea of an infinite or eternal multiverse uh, has been disputed by many physicists uh, today, among them Stephen Hawking and Thomas Hertog. So what does it all mean? We have a beginning, even of a multiverse. We have a beginning of um, uh, our universe and we have these fine-tuning coincidences, which are astronomically improbable, that govern every single law of physics, every single thing that happens in our universe. And they all either happen by pure chance or through a finite multiverse or through a God. You get to take your pick, but the odds of it happening in pure chance, really improbable, you know, in a single try. How about a finite multiverse? Really improbable. Um, because there's only a finite number of bubble universes, and we're dealing with numbers like 10 raised to the 10 raised to the 123 to 1, the Penrose number to explain this. So we're really at the point where we're looking at now, today, um, not only evidence for a creator um, at, you know, prior to the beginning of physical reality itself, whether physical reality is a multiverse or string universe or whatever it might be, Prior to the beginning of that, um, uh, you know, uh, physical reality, uh, physical reality was nothing. And if physical reality was nothing, the only thing it could do is nothing. And if the only thing it could do is nothing, then it couldn't have moved itself from nothing to something um, <laughs> because it was nothing and could only do nothing. So <laughs> something funny. else, something beyond physical right. reality would have had to have done it. Right. And that's something else we would call a transcendent creator. Mm. And then from the fine-tuning constants, we know that that something else, which is beyond the universe, would have to be highly, highly, highly intelligent. And uh, certainly, um, you know, Fred Hoyle, who used to be the atheistic gadfly of physics for decades, uh, basically got one to the theistic viewpoint, um, you know, in, uh, in his, some of his last articles uh, that he wrote, he actually indicated that he believed that um, there were no blind forces worth speaking about. He said, it seems to me that there must be some super calculating, super intellect that has monkeyed with the constants of physics and those of chemistry and biology as well. I consider this conclusion to be beyond uh, the uh, beyond um, uh, mere chance. I consider this uh, to be uh, uh, a certain conclusion. So um, when you really look at that, uh, you can see that uh, a lot of physicists have come around on the basis of the scientific data. And by the way, it's kind of interesting to note um, the statistics for young physicists. I mean, today, 
um, 51% of the whole population of physicists, 51% is theistic. That is to say, they either believe in God or they believe in some kind of higher transcendent mm. power. Um, so that's 51%. Of 41% of physicists are either agnostics, that means they don't know, or they're atheists, that means they deny the existence of God. So you've got about 51% theists, uh, 20%, uh, 21% agnostics, about 20% uh, atheists. This is the Pew survey of the American Association for the Advancement of Scientists. Now, uh, what's interesting is you go to the young scientists, and I believe that's the ones who are either 40 or 35 years old or younger. That statistic changes to 66% are theists. Now, that's mm. rather interesting. It's very interesting. Uh, yeah, because now you've got a supermajority of the scientists mm. who either say they believe in God or uh, a higher um, you know, power, um, higher transcendent power. Um, so if that would be the case, then uh, probably you're dealing with about, um, uh, when you have, take the uncertainty into it, you've only got about 12%, uh, excuse me, um, who are um, atheists and probably about somewhere in the neighborhood of about 20% who are agnostic. So it really has switched over uh, hugely uh, so that the supermajority is theistic in the scientific community among young scientists. Wow. Wow. Well, today our topic is, uh, can faith and science be friends? Uh, in our culture today, faith is often described as an enemy or of reason or opposed to science. You might hear people say, well, you know, I believe in science. And, and, and they often will ostracize people for, for thinking other. What do you say about that view? Well, uh, clearly young scientists certainly don't believe that <laughs> because, you know, young scientists are scientists. And if 66% of them profess belief in God or in a transcendent higher power, mm -hmm. then uh, I would say that um, even scientists don't agree with that. Now, uh, are there a lot of people out there in social media? Are there people like Richard Dawkins and uh, people like that who, um, you know, have whole websites uh, devoted to the God delusion? Yes, they, uh, there are. But Dawkins is a biologist, first of all. He is not a physicist. And secondly, um, uh, Dawkins, of course, has moved his position over the years. He started off as a staunch atheist. Today, he claims he is an agnostic. That means he doesn't know. But he claims to be an agnostic, but leaning heavily on the side of atheism rather than um, theism. But the point, nevertheless, is he's changed. And he is definitely out of step, uh, not only mm. with young physicists, he's out of step with young biologists as well, who seem to have a very different feeling about that. Now, I think a lot of young scientists are also looking not only at the evidence from physics, um, but I think they're looking at these near-death experiences too. Like in, uh, for example, those, you know, 76% of doctors are religious. Now that mm, is um, that's interesting. You know, a huge number, yeah. and seventy-three percent of doctors <clears throat> actually believe in miracles, both past and present. Now, what's interesting about those two, two statistics is doctors. Obviously, many of them will see 
uh, God in the evidence from physics that I was just talking about, the fine-tuning constants, entropy, um, you know, space-time geometry proofs, things of that nature. But they also, I think a lot of doctors see miracles happening all the time. I, they see prayers answered, yes. which are truly medically inexplicable. Mm. We have to integrate apologetics materials into our high schools yeah. uh, that really do uh, consider the scientific uh, dimension very, very quickly. Uh, we have a partnership going right now with Sophia Institute for Teachers where we are putting together senior uh, year courses, Apologetics one, Apologetics two. Uh, senior elective courses with uh, Sophia Institute. And and, and I, I think, you know, um, uh, all of these things are, um, uh, you know, if we can get them in as many high schools as we can so that our analytically oriented students will have that elective option in their senior year to mm-hmm. get the answers that they need, yeah. um, you know, to as I needed it oh, way yeah. back in my high school. That's right. Yeah. You know, they can get those answers. I think that's going to be truly important yeah. um, beyond belief important uh, to maintaining the faith of our, uh, our really Im- intelligent young people, the yeah. ones who want to be scientists, who are interested in philosophy or are interested in going on uh, in more intellectual, uh, you know, uh, uh, areas uh, who want to be doctors, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, um, and not just them, I just think uh, there's a lot of people out there who need this evidence. It just It's not just people who are you know, going to be career-oriented professors or scientists or doctors or something. It's it's a whole range of people who just say, if there's not a, co- you know, science and faith aren't, you know, um, you know going to come together, I- I'm going the science route and I'm not going the faith route. So that's a that's a huge thing, and with respect to you know feeling him, uh, that is important. Uh, we do need to have those retreat experiences. Yeah. The problem is though, retreat experiences by themselves, without what's called intellectual conversion, it won't work. Um, generally, if you give a, a kid a good retreat experience, it has a very good lasting effect for up to three weeks. Right. But then generally that feeling fades, the memory fades, and without the intellectual uh, conviction to complement it, um, it can go very, very quickly, and then they get to college, and some person ridicules them in college for belief in God, and that's it. You know, they jive right off the cliff, and they don't even know why, except that, you know, intelligent people seem to think that this is wrong. But if they can be now our new missionary, so they take the – you know, Sophia Institute thing, you know, I, basically I wrote this with them, uh, the curriculum with them. But if they can um, uh, take this into the classrooms, um, you know, in our high schools, that's going to be a great start. Yes. And then if we can get a concerted video program for uh, confirmation courses, these are the things that are going to work in the long run. Yeah, that's great. Uh, this is a great resources, Father. Thank you for letting us know. Is there anything else that you want to share that you're working on or you think that's really important to help uh, our oh, viewers? I think, you know, uh, moral apologetics is also important, but that's a whole different subject from science and faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, I have a brand new book uh, that's coming out. It's called Science at the Doorstep to God. So I've updated the book to include all the evidence on the infinite, eternal multiverse, eternal inflation, and, you know, showing the Stephen Hawking and uh, Thomas Hurtog, Thomas Banks uh, kinds of evidence that uh, run against it. 
Wow. Is that a book coming out? Are you working on that book? Or what did you say? Uh, I've just uh, finished. I've got it's it really it's a two part book. Um, I've been working with uh, Ignatius Press on it. Um, wow. I'm not sure when it'll come out. The first part is uh, done. That's called Science at the Doorstep to God. The second part is called Science at the Doorstep to Christ. Mm, uh, that wow. one is on um, the Shroud of Turin, oh. uh, uh, pointing to the resurrection of Jesus, the validation of the gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, as well as the Eucharistic miracles. I really uh, burrow down into the laboratory reports that have been done on the many tests uh, for the um, uh, Buenos Aires miracle, also for the Sokolka a miracle in Poland and all the really the the excellent um, stuff uh, that has been done, um, you know, uh, scientifically um, on the uh, Tixla uh, miracle in 2006. It's just remarkable, um, you know, uh, uh, what's been done there. And so I had to get a lot of that material translated uh, into English and then um, present that. But that's all done. And then I'm doing some Marian uh, miracles as well, kind of burrowing into the real science uh, behind the miracle, especially the Guadalupe image. So remarkable. Yeah. So much excellent stuff that's yeah. been done by Jose Oste Tonsman, yeah. uh, you know, with this new book where he shows the parallelism between the left and right eye for those all those images it's it's astounding uh, the it's, evidence is really it's unbelievable quite remarkable yeah it's really uh it's great well you're, you're pretty busy father it sounds <laughs> <laughs> well trying to keep uh, one yeah. step ahead you know <laughs> i i've read uh, a lot of your stuff on the shroud of turin i'm a i have a devotion to that mm -hmm. so we just have to encourage people that are in doubt, that are aching or feel that God doesn't exist to really encourage them to read, like you said, develop the intellect, push them into the areas that will convince them that God is very real and loves them very much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think um, um, if you see this evidence and you look at the science behind that evidence. Oh, yeah. It's compelling. Crowd, it's compelling. It, it's quite compelling. It's and really I do think it gives that you know, so many kids have been propagandized by the fact that they really believe that, you know, not only Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they don't even think he exists. Yeah. You know, they watch some kind of a channel on TV, you yeah. know, and some supposed scholar says that Jesus didn't exist or that Jesus wasn't an yeah. invention of the Jewish community. Uh, you know, when they took a look at all these pagan religions in Egypt or something, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this is just folly. Mm -hmm. It's folly, and it doesn't have you know anything to do uh, with you know good historical and exegetical research. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, a lot of kids don't look at historical and exegetical research. It gets complicated. It's tough to go through. They want the science, and they want it concrete, and that's what the shroud brings into uh, focus. And those Eucharistic miracles. Oh, I mean, oh my it. gosh! Oh my gosh! Uh, bring it really into focus. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, Father, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure and a joy for me to sure. spend this time with you and, and listening to you. And uh, God bless you. God bless you, too. Well, we've come to the end of another podcast, and I'm so glad that you were able to check it out and join us for this episode. I want to remind you to please hit the share button. The more people know about this podcast, the more souls Jesus can save. If you've been blessed by our work, please consider going to our donation page on our website at arrayofhope.net. 
our social media team constantly is putting up great videos, music, and daily reflections on our social media platforms. You got to check that out. We also pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet every day on Instagram at 3 p.m. So please join us as we pray together as the Universal Church. Lastly, you got to check out the Ray of Hope channel, especially our next Rise Up Live show. It's a Catholic variety show of sorts, and it's really for the whole family. So you really got to check out our next show. So our guests next time will be Jake and Heather Kim. We got a married couple on deck, which is going to be very exciting. Our theme will be, we are broken and beautiful. So listen, thanks for joining us today. And there's always a reason for hope. This is Mario Costabile. Until next time, peace.